0: Check. righty. Children are dismissed to Children's Church. Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus, and uh, the notes in the bulletin. This morning in our study of Titus, we'll close out chapter two. We'll close out what has been uh, six weeks covering sound doctrine and sound living, and chapter two really is a set-apart literary unit. A book ended, as, I've, as I pointed out before, with this command to teach. And, and before we get to our text, I just want to, again, show the context of this letter where it fits. The beginning of chapter 2, Paul moves on to what he would have Titus do as his second order of business. The first order of business, appointing elders. And chapter 1, stating why he left him at Crete to set in order what was lacking in the church in the first lacking issue was lacking biblical leadership, qualified leadership. And so the rest of chapter one covers that and the need for such leadership. And now chapter two is devoted to a teaching. It's teaching of doctrine, but doctrine that leads to sound living. Paul's assuming the connection because he starts out in verse one, "'As for you teach what accords with sound doctrine,' But before he gets to doctrine, he gets to living, and he covers the older men, and he covers the older women, and they're to be training the younger women, and then Titus is to train the younger men, and slaves have a word, all before we get to our text for today, the doctrinal gospel foundation for all of this. In Paul's thinking, rightly understood doctrine transforms lives. Rightly understood doctrine is the foundation, is the motivation, is the root that bears the fruit of godly living. So, today we're looking at that root, and I'm very excited because we're looking at the gospel. We're looking at God's grace. Our text, the message this morning saved and trained by God's grace, saved and trained by the gospel. And it's, it's a glorious passage. Let's just read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord God, it is our prayer that you would help us to understand the the height, the depth, and the breadth, and the width of your love, and now as you look at your saving grace, Lord, um, we want to have a bigger understanding of your gospel, of your salvation, of what your son did for us, so Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Lord, give us ears to hear, soften our hearts, increase faith, grant faith, Lord God, purify your bride by your word, and by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. And so what we're going to do as we look through this passage, and man, you could do a three- or four-week series on this text. It is so rich. But we're going to study God's grace, and we're we're going to look at it in four points, that we are saved by grace, saving grace, rather, training grace, intentional grace, and authoritative grace. And so we're going to dive in, saving grace. Verse 11, Paul starts out with a four, linking this to what he has just said, for the grace of God has appeared, Bringing salvation for all people. Now, the link back is both to the preceding verse and the entire preceding section. Remember, when we looked at slaves, he says that they are to not pilfer, verse 10, but to show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for the grace. And then he goes on to what is that doctrine of God? It's this section. So it links logically to the verse before, but it also links really to the entire section. As you saw, the book ends, the teaching at the beginning, and the commanding and exhorting and teaching at the end. This is the foundation. This is the doctrinal content. This is the truth that is to be the impetus, the motivating force for all that he said above. This is why old men need to live a certain way. This is why older men need to live a certain way. This is why the younger women need to live a certain way. Why the younger men need to live a certain way. And why the slaves need to conduct themselves in a certain way as well. This is the fuel for all of that. It's very rich. And he starts off with this great announcement. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And you've got to start and ask, what is grace? Grace is a good thing. It's one of the best things. And very simply put, grace is unmerited favor. It's what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting some good thing that you do not deserve. And so God's grace has appeared. It's appeared, this grace. And as we're gonna see, this is gospel grace. As, as we're gonna see, this is the grace of the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so your first blank, grace has appeared in Christ. And we can see that most clearly by the way he switches from talking about grace in verse 12 to talking about Jesus in verse 14 and 15. The grace that has appeared is the grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ. Literally the word is shined forth. It is shown forth. This grace. That that word for appearing is really to shine out. It's used in... um, in Luke one, when Zacchaeus gets to, not Zacchaeus, Zachariah gets to see the baby Christ, he speaks a uh, prophecy extolling God and says, "Because of your tender mercy, O God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." And that word "to give light" is that same word "to appear." It's a beautiful picture. We were in darkness in our sin. We were in darkness in this world. And God's grace has shone forth in the person of Jesus Christ. And and a specific type of grace, because there's all types of grace that God gives. There's the grace of the rain. There's the grace of every heartbeat that we don't deserve, that we have no claim to. There's the grace of family. There's the grace of health. There's financial graces. There's governmental graces. Graces restraining sin and evil in the world. but this is a very specific grace that Paul is extolling. It's a grace that brings salvation. It's a very specific. Grace. We're narrowing our focus. We could talk about the manifold graces of God and never exhaust our supply, but Paul here is narrowing in the focus to a very specific grace. It's a saving grace. And so before we move any forward, I want to ask, well, what are we talking about here? What is the salvation that grace brings? And that may seem like a silly question. Of course, we know what the salvation is. But what we're going to see in this text is actually the gospel is probably bigger than many of you realized, many of you imagined. This saving grace is is much broader than we might at first think. And so I think it's helpful to review a little bit the way the Bible speaks of salvation. And What we see in the Bible and what we will see in this text is that the Bible is completely comfortable, the New Testament is completely comfortable speaking of salvation in three senses, in the past, in an ongoing present, and in the future sense. Um, and biblically speaking, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. To give an example of this, when the Bible speaks of our salvation in the past tense, it's talking about the forgiveness, justification, sin's penalty removed from us. You'd see that clearly in a passage like Ephesians 2.8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your undoing. It is the gift of God. The Bible, though, can speak of salvation in the present sense. You know, Philippians 2, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You're working something out. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Interesting. There's this present sense. And the Bible can speak of salvation in the future sense. When it's speaking of it in a present sense, it's speaking of being released from the power of sin in our life. When it's in the past, it's from the penalty of sin. And when it's looking to the future, it's looking to Jesus' second coming, where we are saved once and for all from the presence of sin. And we are no longer sinful, we'll be glorified, and this sinful world will be judged, and we'll be with the Lord in paradise. And so Romans 13.11 can say, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. You hear that? Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And so, the gospel addresses all three of those things and we're going to see that in this text that the text is going to look back to grace the text is going to look to present grace and the text is going to look forward to grace we have been saved we are being saved we will be saved and it's all here in this passage and that's what i mean when i say the gospel is bigger and broader and greater and probably more magnificent than many of us understand and so i am very very excited to look through this text and this saving grace, shines forth in Jesus, has shown to all types and classes of men. And and the reason why I make that distinction is all can certainly mean all, every individual. And in one sense, that is true. The gospel is a call, an invitation for anyone, anywhere, to come and be saved, and all who come will be saved. Yet in this text, it's pretty clear to me that he's really focusing on the, the the. the fact that the gospel message invites all types of people, that God is not a respecter of persons. We've just seen instructions for older men, instructions for older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. The gospel is for all of them. The gospel is for every type of person, every culture, every country. The gospel is for Muslims. The gospel is for Americans. The gospel is for Democrats. The gospel is for Republicans. The gospel is for everyone, every type of person. And that's what Paul has just shown. And this saving gospel grace has been shining forth. And what's interesting is is this grace is said to do things. The reason why the title, Saved and Trained by Grace, as we move to verse 12 and 13 into our training grace, grace is the operative agent here. This grace is said to train us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So what is it that's doing the training? Well, in this text, it's the grace or the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is training us. Isn't that interesting? And this is an important point to make because sometimes I think people can think of the gospel as only that which gets you in the door, as only that which gets you from death to life. It, It certainly does that. Is only that which brings in justification, the forgiveness of sins, and growth in the Christian life is, is due to some other principle, some other teaching, some other doctrine, some other motivation. It's not true. What is training us to renounce ungodliness in this passage? It's the grace of God that has shined forth, bringing salvation to all. It's the gospel. The gospel is doing the training, which means the gospel that saves is the gospel that sanctifies the gospel that saves is the gospel that doesn't leave us forgiven, dirty sinners in present life, but forgiven. It sanctifies us. It trains us. The word for training is for pedagogy. Think of a coach. Think of a parent or a teacher training a child. That's what the gospel is doing. And, and this is really important because I've encountered in my Christian life people that want to separate um, the saving work of the gospel from the ongoing work of, of discipleship and sanctification. And, and they are separate in the extent that justification, being forgiven, is different than being growing in grace. But it's the same gospel doing both. And so if, if the gospel is not training you, then the gospel has not saved you. If the gospel is not training you, if you're not being built up and schooled by and in the gospel, then the gospel has not saved you. It's like a cure to a disease that not only halts the progress of the disease, but actually brings you back to health. You see, if it was just forgiveness, it would stop the progress. We, we all have a penalty. We're all headed to death. It would be as if a doctor told you that you had a week to live. You have a sentence of death. And you take a, take a cure. And not only does the cure halts that, but all the damage that the disease has already done in your body, it reverses. The gospel does that as well. It trains us. And and this is also stretching our definition of grace because we tend to think of grace as tolerance, grace as, well, it's okay. But here's a training grace. Here's a a drill sergeant grace. Here's a coach grace. Here's a grace that urges and spurs and trains us on. It's the same gospel. It's the same gospel grace training us. And the reason why Paul is going here, it should make sense, is this is the aspect of the gospel that is going to motivate the holy living In the previous part of the chapter, he's dealing with people who are forgiven. And he will go there. In this text, we will look at the forgiveness of sins, but Paul's primary focus, his primary emphasis is to remind Titus to teach them and to train them that this gospel that saved them is calling on them to be trained. It's training them and it's schooling them and it's urging them and it is sanctifying them. And that, of course, then is the motivating force for why the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men and the slaves need to live a certain way. I just think it's fascinating. Paul is not appealing to some other principle. He's not saying, because the gospel saves you, now out of gratification, serve and obey God. He doesn't say that. Elsewhere, he might say that. Here, it's the same gospel spurring us on to holiness that saved us. And so what is the gospel training us to do then? What is this training grace? Paul says it negatively and positively. We are to renounce and to live and to wait. That is what the gospel is training us to do. So first we'll look at to renounce. And Paul says it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the blanks there, we are to renounce both the root and fruit of sin. Training us to renounce the root and the fruit of sin. And the reason why I phrase it that way is because those two terms, ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness speaks to the attitude, the anti-God attitude. The my way or the highway attitude. And the worldly passions are all the different ways that gets carried out. See, in each and every one of us born into this world, there's a principle of me, my, my way, my rights, my thinking, my freedom. It's an anti-God attitude. It's an anti-creature attitude. It's the attitude of Adam and Eve in the garden when they said, well, we're going to do what we want. We're not going to believe you. It's the attitude of my children when they say no. It's the attitude of all of us naturally. Naturally. And the gospel comes along and is training us and is calling on us and is schooling us to renounce that type of autonomy, to en- renounce that type of living. And that principle in the heart, self, self-will, self-determination, self-actualization, all those selves, and to focus and look to Christ. And not only that root principle, but then every single manifestation, all the passions, desires of the world— which just speaks to every different way people can live out that autonomy. We're to renounce that. We're to renounce the principle in our hearts and our will of self and self-direction and that anti-God attitude, and we are to renounce all the expressions. And there are just millions and millions of expressions. In fact, Romans speaks of people who are inventors of evil. There's a constant stream and supply of new passions of the world. The gospel is training us to turn from those. The gospel is training us to renounce those. That's who I was, but I died. That's who I was, but all things have become new. That's who I was, but in Christ, that's not who I am. And that's what the gospel is training us to do. It doesn't. The gospel doesn't just save us. God's gospel, the cure, does so much more. So yes, by faith we turn and trust in Jesus Christ, and by faith we are forgiven. And then that same gospel that saves schools us and brings us along and molds us and conforms us to his image as the good shepherd shepherds his flock. We are to renounce, but we're also to live. I love this, to live rightly. And the blanks here are to self, to others, and God. God is training us through the gospel how to live in this present age. And, and the, the phrase in, in the text is self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That word for self-controlled is the word we've seen in just about every instruction to the various groups of people. Remember our sermon on sound-minded young men? Same word. And it's the notion of inner mental self-control. Sanity. And so here, the gospel is training us to live rightly in relationship to ourselves, ordered within. The next word just means justly or uprightly, and it has in view our relationships to others. And finally, after renouncing ungodliness, we are to live godly lives. Put on of the corresponding put off. Put off ungodliness. Put on a right attitude towards God. So the gospel trains us to live rightly in relationship to ourselves, in relationship to others, and in relationship to God. And notice again, the gospel isn't just a message for an age to come. Some, sometimes we can present it that way. We can sort of skip over the middle. Do you want to not go to hell, and would you like to go to heaven? That's great. Would you like power to live in this present age, godly, justly, sound-mindedly? The gospel does that too. The gospel does that too. So the gospel trains us to renounce. The gospel trains us how to live, and the gospel trains us to wait. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the way that we do this living, I mean, if you ask yourself, how is it then that I can live renouncing this world. This world has got a lot to offer. This world has got advertisements on every television channel, billboards. Everywhere I look, this world is trying to entice me with its desires. How on earth am I to live and grow renouncing that? Well, because you're not looking only to this world, you're looking to something to come. As Christians, the gospel is training us to wait expectantly In the expectant hope of future grace and glory. To wait in the expectant hope of future grace and glory. Notice how in verse 11, God's grace appeared in Jesus bringing salvation. And here, we await Christ's other appearing. So there's been a grace that came at the cross. There's a great and mighty grace. And there's a grace that comes now, changing us, sanctifying us. And there's a grace that will come that we look to with eyes of faith to when Jesus returns. The way that you can live in this world as though you're not of it is because you're looking at the world to come. And so that really becomes the challenge for us. Is the gospel training you? Is the gospel training me more and more to get excited, more and more to anticipate the return of Christ? Or am I more and more excited for the next season of my favorite television show or the big game coming up? What am, I, what am I looking forward with, with great anticipation? If I'm in the school of the gospel, then I'm being trained more and more to look expectantly for the grace of God to appear at the revelation of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our great hope. And if you don't have that hope, if you don't find yourself motivated by that, it might explain, in part, why you're having a difficult time with the renouncing aspect. Because these are sort of simultaneous events. We are renouncing and living and waiting. In this pre- it's all taking place in this present life. And so, if you're having a hard time with any one piece of that, look to the others. There might be a weak spot there as well. This is what the gospel trains us to do. This is what God's grace trains us to do. And, and hopefully we are all in that school of the gospel, being tutored and trained and discipled by Christ. One other thing to point out in this text is this is one of the great statements of the deity of Christ. If you ever encounter someone who, um, from a different religion, um, doesn't believe that Jesus is God, there's plenty of verses that show that Jesus is God, but this is probably one of the clearest waiting for the blessed hope and appearing the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't get any more clear than that, does it? Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior, and he is going to come again. And yes, as I look at the news, things seem to be going from bad to worse all over the world, but it's okay, because I've read the back of the book and we win. <laughs> and he's coming back. Our great God and Savior is coming back. He will not leave us here. And as we get excited about that grace and that glory, and what he's speaking of there is glorification, the, the glory of Christ, because... When he returns, we will see him as he is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see dimly as through a glass. Now, because of our own sinfulness, because the Lord is not present um, in an unveiled fashion, we see him with eyes of faith through the word. There will come a day where we will see him face to face, without any mediation, without any veil. Now, the only way we can do that and not be destroyed is if we ourselves are sinless, if we ourselves are fully sanctified and glorified. And so that's what Paul is summing up here when he talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that eternal state, that that glorious appearing and changing of us. Because as we behold glory, we are glorified from one image of glory to another. And so simultaneously, when we behold the Lord, we will see him as he is, and we'll be like him, without sin. Colossians 1.27 calls it the hope of glory, which is Christ in us. And so if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you've entered the gospel gate by faith, then the grace of God at work in the gospel is changing and channeling and schooling and tutoring you to renounce this world's wisdom in this world's way of living, to live rightly and to live expectantly waiting. This grace trains. And then it's as though Paul can't name Jesus without speaking some more about him. And so verse 14 now, we look to intentional grace. Paul's train of thought here is, is, is not really stacked. It's more linear. He's going along waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he can't just stop there. He's got to tell you some more about Jesus. He can't name him without extolling him. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so in this passage... What we see, what we're looking at when I say intentional grace is what was God's purpose in saving us? What was God's purpose in sending his son? What was God's intention in doing what he has done? Or another way, what, what does the gospel intend to do to us? And here we're going to see two things, two intentions, that Jesus gave himself up to redeem us and that Jesus gave himself up to cleanse us. You see that in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And we'll take these one at a time. First, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus willingly give himself up on the cross? Remember, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He gives himself up voluntarily for us. He did so to redeem us from all lawlessness. And that blank you put next to there, you can put justify, which is a fancy way of saying forgiveness. Jesus died to remove the penalty of sin from us. All of us were sinners, all of us had incurred judgment under the righteous rule of God. We had rebelled in our heart and our thoughts and our actions and our words. We were helpless to pay the penalty ourselves. Because most of us don't want grace. Most of us want to work for our salvation. And working for something is the antithesis of grace. Grace, remember, unmerited favor. But it's humbling because I don't deserve it. And all of us intuitively want to work, 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 work so we can earn something that we can take pride in. Because we did it. And Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us, to to have us be forgiven. And this is the aspect of the gospel that if I were to ask you, why did Jesus die? Most of you would probably say, and you'd be absolutely right. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. Jesus died to redeem us. Jesus died to remove the curse of the law from us. Jesus died so that our record of sins could be nailed to the cross with him. Amen, amen, and amen. There's another reason this text says Jesus died. Jesus gave himself up to cleanse us and to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. And So next to cleanse, I want you to put the word sanctify. Sanctify, which is a fancy way of saying making more holy, purifying, as the text says. And so the first one speaks of that one-time action at the beginning where by faith, by turning to Christ from, from sin and from however you were living your life, looking to him, You trusted in him. And in the moment in time, you were forgiven. In the moment in time, you went from death to life. You went from alienation to sonship to daughterhood. Jesus died to do that. But Jesus also died to cleanse us, to cleanse us. He died so that not only would the penalty of sin be removed from us, he died so that in this life now, as we live in this present age, sin's power would be removed from us as well. And even though this text doesn't explicitly say it, First Peter three eight also says Jesus died to bring us to God. Remember, I said the gospel is past, present, future. Well, we were in verse thirteen looking to Christ's coming, so the future aspect of the gospel is there as well. But it's equally biblical, equally biblical to say Jesus died for our forgiveness. Jesus died so that we could become sanctified. We could have power to resist sin. And you could say Jesus died according to First Peter. 3.18, to say Jesus died to bring us to God. It's all biblical, it's all true, it's all one gospel. Amen and amen and amen. Jesus gave himself up to cleanse us. And that's, that's really the motivating factor that Paul's assuming will drive the older men, will drive the older women, the younger women, the younger men and the slaves. Jesus didn't just die so we could not go to hell. He, he absolutely did. He died so that we could be cleansed. And as we think of that, we think of Jesus' intention and purpose in his death, in his giving himself up for us. Hopefully, as we're being schooled in the gospel, we will be motivated to grow and to change and to do these things that Paul says fit, comport with sound doctrine. And he doesn't just leave it there. He died to cleanse us for himself as a special people for himself. The ESV renders it who gave himself for us to redeem us from our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And that phrase, purify for himself, I think the King James says, a peculiar people or a treasured people or a special people. I I just love that. Jesus' intention is to come for his bride. To use the language of Ephesians 5, Jesus came to get a bride for himself, a bride of the redeemed. And he didn't just stop there to die for his bride, But he cleanses his bride. Husbands are extolled. You probably have heard this at weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might cleanse her by the washing with the water of the word. Jesus gave himself up to cleanse his bride to make for himself a special people. And that phrase, for himself a people, is rooted in an Old Testament idea. Um, in Exodus 19.5, when God takes Israel out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai, before he gives the law, before the Ten Commandments, before the priestly code, the first word he says to them for why he brought them there is this, in Exodus 19.5-6, through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, same phrase. Same exact words. You shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the book of Deuteronomy, it picks up on the same phrase, Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Peter picks this up in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you get how intimate that is? How special and beloved we are? Jesus didn't just die, so, okay, I'll see you later at heaven. He died for a people that he intimately loves. He died to cleanse his bride, whom he will marry at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He died. For, for an intimate relationship with us, is a special people for himself. And then that people is further qualified as ones who are zealous for good works. Zeal, energy, excitement. A zealot in the New Testament was basically the equivalent of a terrorist. Simon the Zealot, these, these are the people who are so zealous, they're fighting the Romans. Um, and I won't go so far as to say the Lord wants us good works terrorists, but he wants us zealous, he wants us excited. This is why he died. Jesus died so that I could be zealous for good works. Jesus died so that Greg could be zealous for good works. That is his goal and intention. It's not the only goal and intention. We've seen he died to save us from sin, but he also died so that we would be passionate about good works, which is pretty much the major theme of the whole book. Good works show up repeatedly we can Go back to chapter 1. Take a look here. Titus 1.1. Because remember, this new baby church is living in Crete, and Crete is a decadent and godless culture, and so this new baby church, just birth, is still looking an awful lot like the world and the culture around it. And so Paul, knowing the church is not ready to stand on its own two legs yet, leaves Titus behind, and they need leaders, but they need to start acting differently than the culture. They need to start acting like... Christians. And so even in this introduction in one, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, with godliness. His major concern for the false teachers in verse 1.16 is that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's, that's one of the big problems with these false teachers. They're not qualified. They're not able. They're not living good, godly lives. Which is why then in verse 7 of chapter 2, Paul wants Titus to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, reminds them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Three eight. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. You you see that big thread, that big theme going through the book? That's one of Paul's major concerns. Without... First, you need qualified leaders to teach and model for the people, and then you need to exhort and encourage the people to live these lives that are different than the culture. And the motivation for this is because that's why Jesus died. That's the motivating factor. The other motivating factor is that's what the gospel does. And so people that claim that they're saved by the gospel need to evidence that they're being schooled by the gospel. They need to evidence that they've taken the cure, You said it earlier, if you reject this aspect of the gospel, if you aren't interested in good works, if you aren't interested in being schooled by the gospel, then you're rejecting the gospel. You're you're rejecting the salvation if you're rejecting the sanctification. If you you don't have any interest in this, then you don't have any interest in the gospel. Because it's one gospel that does the saving, and it's one gospel that does the sanctifying. Jesus' one death on the cross so that we might be forgiven. Jesus' death on the cross so that we might become zealous for good works. It's a package deal. And that's what Paul wants Titus to remind the Cretans about. That they need to live in accordance with the gospel. That they need to live in that school. Because that's why Christ died. Gave himself to redeem us. And he gave himself to cleanse us and to make for himself a people for his own possession. A treasured people, a peculiar people. Zealous For good works. That's God's intention and goal in sending his son. That is Jesus' intention for you. That's why he died. He died so he could be forgiven. And he died so that we could have the power to become more like him. And the question for us is, does that interest us? Is that something we want? And finally, verse 15, we see authoritative grace. Authoritative grace grace. Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. And we're just going to look at the centrality of this message, this gospel, and unpacking the gospel. I mean, the gospel is easy enough for a child to understand, and the gospel is deep enough for us to study and get lost in for the rest of our lives. But there can be a danger sometimes of so simplifying the gospel to four spiritual laws or two sentences that that we don't move on to really grasp its depth and its height and its breadth. And that's what he's doing here. He's unpacking the gospel somewhat. He's saying, Titus, devote yourself to. Just teach and declare and exhort or approve and convict with all authority we see this fundamental centrality and importance of these things. This isn't a message for beginners. Let me move on to deeper things. This is the message. This is what saves us. This is what sanctifies us. And really, as we study other doctrines, we don't really understand them rightly until we see them as flowing out of the gospel. I mean, I've said this to other people. Whatever text I'm reading, whatever text I'm teaching, whether it's the Psalms, whether it's Leviticus, whether it's Philemon... I want to see how it either flows into and points to the gospel or it comes out of the gospel. Because until I understand truth as it relates to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't understand it. It's either pointing there and getting us there or it's coming out of there. This passage is coming out of the gospel. Because Jesus died, the older men are to live this way. Because God's grace has shown the older women are to live a certain way. Because God's grace has shown forth, the younger men need to live a certain way. That's the way this works. And this message, you don't move on past it. I mean, notice how Paul stacks up his terms, declare these things and exhort and rebuke. Then in case that's not clear enough, with all authority... You're starting to get the idea of how central, how important this message is. Declared, teaching, exhorting, probably speaking but coming alongside and encouragement, maybe counseling, rebuking. It's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 9 for elders who are able to refute those who contradict. This is various ministries of the word. This is pulpit ministry. This is Sunday school ministry. This is counseling ministry. In every space where we're speaking truth, we're speaking this. That's the point. Every, every place we're bringing God's word to bear, whether it's from the pulpit or from the counseling, we're bringing the gospel. If you're not bringing the gospel, you're not bringing anything. And the gospel applies to all areas of life. And it's that challenge for us to make that connection. Sir, you need to change the way you're living. You need to live a more sound-minded life because of the gospel. Young man, you, you need to live your life a certain way because of the gospel. That, that's the challenge. It's what protects us from moralism. Otherwise, we leave the gospel as something for beginners and now here are the rules. You're going to be a moralist real fast that way. And so all of our conduct needs to come out of and flow out of and adorn the gospel, the fundamental centrality of these things or gospel-centeredness of this message. And he's, he's not to... Let anyone disregard him. I mean, not only, Titus, devote yourself to this. Teach nothing but this. In every context, teach it. And if anyone's standing in your way, shut him down. I, I don't know what it looks like for no one to let no one disregard you. Um, I don't know exactly what that might mean, but <laughs> I'd be interested to see what that looks like in practice. You know, someone's trying to stop. He's just shutting him down. uh Uh-uh. We're preaching and declaring the gospel and its implications to all life with all authority in all contexts, not letting anyone or anything get in the way. Which brings us now to our final point: submission and obedience to the demands of grace. Because that's really the point, at least in this context, that Paul is trying to drive Titus to teach. Remember, this is all about motivating and the foundation for why. All of the different groups in the church, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, the slaves, why well, they all need to change the way they're living, why well, they all need to be exhorted and encouraged and taught to live differently than the culture. And so what we see is grace has demands. This grace that did the shining is also the grace that does the training. And trainers generally are not asking you to do things. I don't know if you've been on a sports team. Your coach doesn't generally say, hey, would you mind going out and receiving some?" No, they just tell you. you Johnson, you're over there, and, and they just set it up. School teachers, these good ones, generally don't ask kids, to, Could, would you guys mind taking out your textbooks? No, let's take your textbooks out. Open to page 57. This, this grace that trains demands things of us, and, and I know this can stretch our thinking because we're just used to just grace sort of being offered on a platter, like, here you go. Would you like a mint? And the grace of God does come like that. It comes to where we are, but it it, it takes hold of us, and it demands things of us. And and this explains, then, why we can get the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament, in ways that might stretch our thinking. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Here's Jesus first preaching the gospel. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's not asking. That's a command. He's, Jesus isn't showing up. God's grace isn't showing up in Jesus saying, hey, is anyone here interested in possibly maybe repenting and believing in the gospel? He, he's, grace is commanding it. Paul says it even more clearly in Acts 17.30, the ergopagus Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's Paul's gospel message. God has commanded you to believe. God has commanded us to repent. Which is why he can speak in Romans 1.5 of his apostleship, through whom he says we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's also why I can speak of the failure of the Israelites. Why did, why did Israel miss their Messiah? They refused to submit to God's grace. Listen to this, Romans 10.3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not obey the demands of grace to humble themselves. They were self-righteous. Grace was calling on them to humble themselves, to let go of their claims to right. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't obey the commands of grace. And so I want to make it clear as we close that the gospel reaches us. We have to do nothing. We have to do nothing but turn and believe. We have to do nothing but, but be willing to trust Jesus Christ. But there's a sense in which the gospel is costly. I want, you, I want you to give you an illustration. I want you to imagine you're on a fifth floor of a building, an office building at work, and while you're at work, a fire breaks out. And you see smoke coming up the uh, stairs, and a coworker, Tries to leave through the stairwell and he comes back up a few moments later. There's a burning inferno on the floors below you. There's no way down through the stairs. And so you're on the fifth floor and you're, you're waiting for that fire to reach you, terrified. And all of a sudden, you hear the sound of a crash behind you and you turn. And there's a firefighter on a ladder and he's broken the window behind you. And he doesn't ask, he doesn't give an invitation. He says, jump into my arms. I'll catch you. I will save you. That would be a pretty poor firefighter if he's like, excuse me. Um, does anyone here interested in... No, he's 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 doing it lovingly. He's doing it with compassion. But precisely because he loves you, precisely because he knows the situation you're in, he is, jump! And you think to yourself, I don't know, are you strong enough to hold me? Or what, what if, is your ladder... He's like, "No, I'm not going to drop you. Trust me. Jump." And and then you're standing there and you got your your laptop under your arm. And you and you and you got your, your your big gulp in your hand. And you say, "Can I take my stuff with me?" It's like, "No! Drop it. Jump." And that's the gospel. It's free. It's grace. But there are demands. And then once you jump out and the firefighter grabs you, you don't just sort of hang out outside the fifth floor of that office building. You got to start climbing down. And as you're climbing down, you say, you got to hold on tight to me. Don't worry, I'll be holding on to you too, he says. But you need to hold on tight. And as you're going down, that'd be kind of like the sanctification. You're making progress. There's that moment where you go from the burning inferno, where you go from peril to safety. And then there's that journey downward. Well, you got to hold on. He's holding on to you, but you got to hold on too. And then finally, he puts you down safely on the ground, and you are saved indeed. So he saved you, and he jumped out the window, and he's saving you as he's bringing you down that ladder. And finally, when you set your feet down on solid ground, you are saved. That's the gospel. Jesus says, jump, I'll catch you, I'll hold you. And then Jesus said, hold on tight till we get you home, and then one day he will return, and we'll be home, and our feet will touch the ground in our heavenly country. It's all grace. It's all the gospel. And it's all why Jesus died. And it's all to motivate us to be zealous for good works. It's all to encourage us and urge us to do these things. One last thing I want to say is, I call the worship team up. And that is this. I thought it's interesting that if the gospel is schooling us, then why does Titus need to teach this? I'll say that again. If If this grace is training us, then why is it so important for Titus to teach it? Well, the reason is God works his grace through people, through each other. It's why we gather as a church. The gospel isn't going to train you in a vacuum. God is going to train you through the gospel, through the preaching of his word, through his people. It's why we're gathered together. It's why we come together to encourage each other onto love and good deeds. Will you please stand and we are going to sing the gospel song as God's redeemed people.